Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact about last week's programme discussing the law and anonymity. You can still listen back to the podcast on our website at newstalk.com or, as always, on the Go Live app. And today, you can get in contact with us by emailing between the lines at newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up on today's programme, we'll be discussing flooding, the response, how to look at prevention and future planning. That's this week's show. And it follows extensive flooding that has occurred again in parts of the country in recent weeks. We saw major flood areas affected, stretching from Carrick and Shannon in Leitrim down to Athlone and parts of South Clare. But what's interesting is that the threat of the flood looms over these people on nearly an annual basis. We want to know, why is that? Joining me to discuss in studio today, our panel, Professor Mary Burke, who's an expert in flood risk and management at Trinity College Dublin's Dublin's Department of Geography. Also environmental journalist John Gibbons and Brian O'Donovan, who's the uh, Carlow County Council Senior Executive Officer with Environment and the uh, Water Department. My thanks to you all, first of all, for joining us today. Um, Perhaps maybe, John, I might just start with yourself. Can can you just explain to us, maybe give us a little bit of the science, but if you can, in fairly simplistic terms, what's happening here? Why, Why is this flooding occurring in the first place? I suppose what we're seeing in Ireland is part of a global trend and this is uh, it's an intensification of the hydrological cycle which in plain terms means that for every one degree of global warming we get 7% more precipitation. Now, so what that means and we see it playing out locally is that that because of higher global temperatures which have been reflected by the way here in Ireland as well our temperatures have risen by about 0.8 degrees over the last 30 years You mean like the weather? This is the overall average temperatures Andrea this is right across the seasons summer, winter, the whole thing And, and this change in the background condition has intensified the hydrological cycle. As I say, it's leading to more evaporation, more rainfall, and it's also leading to changes in the patterns of rainfall. So we're now seeing what what Dublin City Council recently described as monster rains. So you may have X millimetres over a given period, but you're now seeing changes in the patterns of rainfall. And I'm sure Mary will be able to explain explain this in far more detail than I could. But that is broadly what we're looking at here, is a more intense hydrological cycle, which in plain terms means that we're going to get and we're already getting more intense rainfall and disrupted patterns of of precipitation. And this is playing out, as you said, all over. And what we're seeing is what used to be known as once in 100 year events Mm. in Ireland and elsewhere are now becoming far more frequent. And I'm afraid the news looking forward is not positive because because we've done nothing to address global warming, we're going to see much more of this as temperatures continue to climb. And they are climbing. Okay, well, there there are a couple of points we'll maybe come back to a little bit later on, but perhaps, Mary Burke, I might just bring you in at the moment um, from Trinity College Dublin's Department of Geography. Just to pick up on that point that John made, I was reading a little bit earlier in the week, whereby I think parts of two different weather stations in the country had actually, had they reported their wettest February on record? I mean, there seems to be a huge shift, as John mentioned. There's two, there's two points to make. You're absolutely correct that there are uh, weather stations across Ireland that have recorded uh, levels in excess of anything that's ever been recorded before. But importantly, the records are short. 
They're maximum going back to 1920. Most of them start in okay, 1950s right. and 60s. And our current climate has been around, let's mm. say, plus or minus a couple of thousand of years. So we really don't know the full spectrum of the climate from data. We know it from modelling, but not from data. So records are being broken across the country. That's a fact, according to the data that we have available mm. to us. But there was this really excellent study that was done uh, with scientists all across Europe showing that these trends are across Europe and showing that what's happening in terms of the change, and just to go back to what John was saying, is that places in Europe are getting wetter, but places are getting drier as well. And so we need to broaden the conversation in addition to floods to the fact that there's going to be droughts as well. So it's a hydrological hazard. We're going to have too much and too little rain. But interestingly, when they did the analysis on these uh, records from 1960 to 2010, they found that over the last uh, five decades um, that the discharge in the rivers had increased by 5% per per decade. So we're getting wetter. So removing the uh, conversation from climate change for the moment the rivers are flowing uh, with more water in them at the moment. Okay. It's interesting because just certainly from, you know, my own perspective and at an anecdotal level, I mean, every year around this time, you can nearly be guaranteed there's going to be a flooding story in the news. So, I mean, if it's, if it's, if I'm aware of the fact that flooding happens on an an anecdotal basis, on a yearly basis like this, that we can nearly preempt there's going to be a flooding story, it would kind of strike me, Brian O'Donovan, that um, like surely the county councils and people in charge of flood management across the country must be aware of this too. Yeah, certainly. Um, I, I suppose the CFRAM study that was uh, completed there a number of years ago uh, in conjunction with the OPW, um, I suppose for the first time really did a comprehensive um, analysis of flooding around the country uh, in association with local authorities and public consultation. Um, so the areas certainly are identified um, and there's been quite a large investment scheme, um, particularly along the east of the country. Uh, you know, where areas like Clonmel, Carlow itself, Kilkenny, you know, have got very, very good flood relief schemes. Um, and again, as, as John said, they were designed to the one hundred year flood. So I suppose, you know, the concern is at this point, you know, is this, I suppose, and what it was called before is the one in a thousand year flood, uh, you know, going to kick in? And, um, you know, is there going to be issues further down the line in terms of flooding? So, you know, the, the responses, we have sea flooding, uh, we have uh, pluvial and fluvial flooding. So, again, I suppose it's the pluvial flooding that is is, is is kind of largely dealt with in terms of the, the sea frams. But again, it's the intensity of the showers. It is the drains that are getting blocked at the time of the years, you know, that that's putting a lot of pressures on okay. reactive from a local authority point of view. So, Mary, if the one in a thousand year flood is now at least a one in a year flood in certain parts of this country alone, like how can we not put the plans in place? So there's a couple of points uh, to, to make, I suppose, in response to that. First of all, there's no such thing as a once in 100 year flood. And if, if there's a message that anybody takes home listening uh, this evening is that basically that's got mixed up in the message. There is a 1% chance in any given year of a flood of that magnitude happening. It's a 1% flood. And if you could just start everywhere? calling it that. Okay, yeah. Well, that, that's, that's, well, you would have these 1% floods everywhere. Then there'll be different magnitudes everywhere depending on, on what their catchment size is. So the second point to make is that what we thought was the 1% flood has now been documented in Ireland to become the 2% flood or the 5% flood. And is that everywhere? Not, well, it's not everywhere because every catchment is course, different. Of course, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and sorry, every, yeah. like we get wetter rain, more wet rain over in the, in the west than the east, so the north and the south mm. differ as well. So um, not only is, is where the amount of rain coming in different, but also how it responds 
while the land response to the receipt of that rainfall is very, very uh, different as well in the catchments. And so we've got big catchments, huge catchments like the Shannon, very teeny tiny ones of the tributaries that might fit into the Shannon or flow off the Dublin mountains, etc. And they're all very different. Some are very steep, some are very low gradient. And how the flood is manifested through those catchments is what we need to be talking about, how we can manage that more effectively. So what do we currently do, John Gibbons, to manage flooding as it stands? So without it even getting any worse or more frequent, just like what do what do councils do to manage this? Well, I, I, I suspect Brian is probably better qualified to talk about the, the specific um, systems and ma- management uh, strategies that are put in place. But my hometown is Kilkenny. And that used to suffer extreme uh, flooding within the city. And there was remedial works undertaken there to protect the city. Very expensive and very successful. So Kilkenny has avoided in recent years severe flooding damage. Now, you can do that to protect key infrastructure, high value infrastructure, like, for example, towns and cities. What you cannot do is turn our river system into a series of canals. And and I do see evidence of this that some uh, local authorities and possibly the OPW in certain cases seem to believe that you can canalise our rivers, that you can simply replace natural systems with concrete. Now, I'll explain why, as I say, you can protect high-value infrastructure, as I mentioned, and you have to protect high-value infrastructure. What you cannot do is then continue that all the way to the sea. So if you go out into the countryside, Andrea, right, what we have is the normal flow of a river is into its river plain. Now, I remember from from Leaving Start Geography Mm. many years ago, these things called oxbow lakes, right? Now, I'm, and again, Mary may correct me on this, but I gather there there's no such thing as oxbow lakes anymore. We've been so busy straightening, draining and improving, inverted commas, our rivers, that the natural features, the natural flooding propensity of rivers, what we have done is we've decided, no, we want the land. Rivers need to flood. They, the floodplains are natural. And what we've found in many cases is that agriculture is encroaching on the floodplains and the wetlands. We've been draining them and, inverted commas, improving them to grab that land back so we can have more cattle on it and so on. Now, Then the same farmers are turning around and saying, but hang on, my land is flooded. Why is my land flooded? Well, have a look. It's in a floodplain. So, and of course, that issue has been compounded because we've also had local authorities allowing people to build properties in floodplains. And I've enormous sympathy, by the way, for people who have got a property that might have been built in the last 10 or 20 years and they've paid probably over the odds for it, and now they're finding every number of years, every two or three years, whatever it is, that their property is under flood. Can I just come back to a couple of those points, John? I just want to get a little bit of clarity on some of them. Um, Just perhaps maybe Mary Burke on on that issue of, um, as John mentioned, farmland and farmers. I mean, is it all the farmers' fault? I don't want to blame anyone. I don't think we can do that. I don't think that's... The way forward. I think we need to just accept where we're at at the moment and start thinking intelligently and together. Like we all live in catchments and we all have a responsibility here from the individual to local communities to county councils right up to highest government Mm. level. And there needs to be this joined up thinking. So the farmers, I mean, and people who live in houses, their sons and daughters are built on their land, etc. That's really essential for the rural culture in Ireland. Let's not forget that. Um, And as, as John has said, it's it's not their fault as such, but there is a reality hit there. And they're the ones sitting in with water a foot deep in their kitchens right now, uh, listening in. So there's a couple of things that can be done. Um, and that is a change in our attitude to the fact that we must become more resilient to floods. So if there's any new houses to be built, just like we're building houses now for energy efficiency, we have to build them for flood uh, protection as well. And there's this has been done across the world in terms of you would build higher if you have to build on floodplains and you would allow your your pull-in garage where you park your car 
to be inundated with water whenever it needs to mm. be. Your all of your essential uh, items are up on the first floor, etc. So if you're going to do that, there are county councils. Oh, I don't think they're called county councils, but in the UK, the local councils are now saying, and this is relevant to us under a housing pressure scheme, we have to build more accommodation. And the people in, in the United Kingdom are saying, well, the only place we have left to build is on these floodplains. So what's it going to be, guys? Let us know. So you have to adapt to do that. You can still build on them, but you just have to make yeah. adaptations to yeah. do so. Yeah, back can from I, the river and higher yeah. up. I just want to ask you about that point y'all mentioned too about the Oxbow Lake. Yeah, lovely to hear geography. Hashtag save geography. <laughs> I'm a geographer and geographers are highly skilled to solve these problems because we understand the physical system and the human system. So... Oxbow Lakes um, is, yeah, a term that we'll all remember along with meandering and, and, and beaches and stuff. But flooding is natural. OK, first point. Rivers flood. They're supposed to flood, right? And on floodplains, um, these features, these archaic kind of wet areas that used to be known as, as Oxbow Lakes, they're actually still there. They're not maybe wet. They might be full of reeds, but the depression on the floodplain is still there. And this is really important. And it's one of the ways in which we can mitigate against future floods because we need to reconnect our river channels to their own floodplains and allow the waters to get in there. So sort of manufacture this? Well, unmanufactured. We we disconnected them, either by dredging them or by blocking them off with whatever was available at the time. and we need to reconnect them. And in Europe, they have this approach where they're called uh, winter channels, which allows the water to go in there and it may yeah. stay there for the winter, but they'll dry out and you'll be able to put your cattle and sheep out in the, during during the summer. So that's one of the approaches. There's lots of big rivers in, in across Europe, the Danube, etc. And they have done really good kind of nature-based approaches to, to managing floods that have been quite effective. Can I bring you in, Brian O'Donovan, just on some of the points there that have been made? Listen, I suppose from a, a local authority point of view, we're looking at rivers from a couple of different um, aspects. We're looking at the flooding, but we're also looking at the river water health and quality and the biodiversity on it. So it's very, very important to solve uh, the problems that were created in the past. Um, and very often to solve a future problem, we have to look at what we did historically. And what we have done in Ireland is that we drained the land. Um, as John has said, you know, we had drainage districts that were, were run by local authorities. Um, and again, these drainage districts were maintained um, uh, locally. They were designed and built at a different time. Um, and again, these lands were wetlands, boglands, mm. you know, natural floodplains that were reclaimed for agricultural purposes. Um, the difficulty now is that as our climate change, as the river water channels, as the drainage channels um, are, are under pressure, this is putting much more pressure on the agricultural lands. So again, we have to look at the river holistically. And again, you can channelise rivers within towns. You know, it does happen. You you cannot look at the floodplains. We've built towns. Kilkenny's, Clonmel's, Carlos, as I mentioned before, have all been built on floodplains. What do we do? Do we move the people out? That's not practical. So again, they're high value areas that we have to protect. And we have protected and spent a lot of money. You know, there was 20 million euros spent on the, on the flood relief scheme in, in, in County Carlow. Um, so, but again, in the other areas, you know, we have to look at the floodplains. We have to look at restoration. You know, there was a fantastic restoration project done down in, in Waterford um, in terms of natural wetlands. And again, that was a collaboration between a number of different authorities. Uh, it's been very successful. And again, in terms of biodiversity, in terms of river, in terms of water cleanliness and health, mm. um, it's very, very important. So we have to look holistically at the rivers. Uh, it's very, very important. Can I just ask, when we're talking about flooding at the moment, we're not just talking about agricultural land either. Like, are we talking about kind of your, your towns as well? 
Yeah, like again, we, we've identified, we've been looked very lucky in County Cardon, again in the east of the country, that, you know, we've done flood relief schemes in, in Lockton Bridge, in Tullow, in, in Carlow, um, you know, and, and the schemes have been successful. Um, I, I worked as town engineer in Carlow Town in 2009, where I had to send boats into apartments to pull people and their belongings out. Um, at one case, it was two weeks before I could let hundreds of people back into their apartments. These were all displaced and relocated. That's nearly a distant memory in Carlow. Mm. That's only only 11 years ago since this has been developed. But again, the maintenance of those systems, you know, we have huge pumping systems that are keeping that in order. And again, even the maintenance, the cost of, and, and the future of that, and it's all reliant on pumping systems. Towns are built in a bowl. The bowl is filled with water as the as the, as the the rivers escape from their channels. And we, we were caught in a perfect storm with two rivers flowing through Carlow Town Centre, the River Burn and the Barrow. And the Barrow is a huge catchment. As Mary mentioned, we had two really, really different rivers. We had a really flashy burn coming from Mount Leinster, you know, up and down in a day or two. We had the Barrow, big, slow river, huge catchment coming from the centre of Ireland. So, you know, that could arrive mm. down, um, you know, a couple of days later. So, again, even the management of that, um, you know, a, a huge challenge. Can you, It might be a stupid question, but when you talk about these flood relief programs and plans what exactly does that involve? Uh, they're very complex because I suppose when people look at rivers they look at, at rivers bursting their channels back out into towns. The problem with towns is that towns are designed to drain into the rivers. So when you can't drain into the rivers then the drains all get backed up. Uh, unfortunately and the reality of this is a lot of these drains are combined drains with sewers. So again you've contaminated water and that contaminated water enters the, the river channel, that enters into the streets, it enters into people's homes. So you know the main drainage schemes very very often go along with main, with the flood relief mm. schemes where you're separating out, separating out the sewerage from the, 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 the surface water drainage. So again towns are very dependent on rivers in terms of keeping their roads free from water. So is actually, is the problem then the drainage system? The drainage system is is not the problem. Again, the the rivers towns were built on rivers for for a number of reasons. They were yeah. built for transport. They were built for taking water. They were built for sanitation. So they were built on that for a number of reasons. So drains exist, and towns were were built constructed for those reasons in towns. Now we have to try and pump the water back out of the towns, and we have to use technology um, because you know the old systems just don't work anymore. Can you perhaps maybe Mary Burke? So I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, we're looking at Victorian age and older kind of towns and, and systems of drains that have been put in. It's a really old technology. And as you say, get the water out of there as quick as possible. What's emerging now and what has been implemented in many towns across Ireland are SUDs, sustainable ur- urban drainage systems. And that's where we're trying to get into a system where we start to hold back the water a little bit. So you ha- And they're beautiful. They're, they're planted flowers and trees along urban areas that are very impermeable. So the rain will rush off those surfaces. But if you have these little uh, areas that are along footpaths, um, they can just basically act as soaks for the runoff can be moved towards them and held there for a longer period of time. And that helps the capacity of the drains. So yes, some will go into the drains, but basically this will reach there. It'll be delayed and reach there much later. And so there's wonderful examples in Dublin and is there some in Cork and uh, sorry, in Carlow? And there, there's fantastic examples yeah. all over the place of SUDS and again we would apply the SUDS policies to all our planning now. Uh, again, you know, I mentioned CFRAMS earlier on and uh, site-specific flood risk assessments are very, very important part of the planning process that identify floods now 
try not get the water off the site, try and retain it in its natural environment, whether that's an industrial estate, whether that's a housing estate, whether that's a commercial development, don't send it towards the rivers, retain it on the, on the lands. And, and that's the council's kind of responsibility, but we as individuals can also do something as well in terms of harvesting our rainwater yeah. that falls on our roofs. Well, funny, I was going to ask you that actually, just before I maybe look at some of the people that have been affected in, in more recent weeks, but like a sort of private individuals here, maybe all living in different, different parts of the country, like what can individuals do? Or are there small things people can do to try and yeah, you can hold the water on your in your garden if you're lucky enough to have one or own some roof space. You can petition uh, kind of the owner of your apartment block to have like green roofs, for example. They've been shown and demonstrated to absorb huge amounts of water before it hits your drain pipes. Um, and then you can maybe, um, as well as harvesting it into tanks to use it during droughts, um, have a tube going out into your garden. Again, if you have a garden, there is quite a lot of, for all new developments, again, going back to this idea, we need to build for flood resilience in all new properties. There are uh, porous pavings that you can use now rather than the cement, which just runs off immediately, where the rainfall that goes on, it basically disappears down mm. into um, the actual matrix of the of the uh, mixture itself. And it's very durable. You can drive over it. All of our new uh, road structures can also, or roading um, systems that we're trying to put in the the N11 down the M M11 down to Wexford new these can all be of the same kind of material that will absorb the water make driving safer mm. and handle the floods okay. as well. John Gibbons. Yeah, I one thing we haven't uh, touched on yet which which is it's huge. And this would be a single land use change that would probably help in the Midlands more than any other intervention I would suggest and that is rewetting of our bogs. The fact Bordnemona and other contractors and other companies over the last decades, they have drained our peat bogs. Now, what that means is you put drains into the bogs, you drain off the bogs, and guess where that water ends up in our river system. So that is additional water. Our midlands are made of bog. Now, that is the natural condition. That bog holds vast amounts of water. The best step that you can take is to allow bogs to do what they do. Bogs are apart from all the biodiversity and and carbon sink uh, functions of bogs, what they're fantastic at is retaining huge amounts of water. So let's just say you've got a a downpour in the Midlands, right? Now, at the moment, that water flashes onto our drained bogs and then sweeps off the bogs and ends up in the rivers. That then, the river level goes up and everyone's screaming blue murder. Now, if you re-wet the bogs, as we should be in course to do now anyway, because basically we're, we're in the process of exiting from, the, from the, the bog cutting business, in the coming years, as those bogs are re-wetted, this is tens of thousands of hectares of highly absorbent ground that will help to hold water in the Midlands. And this is something that is so often missed in the discussion about the future of Bordnemona and the future of bogs. It is going to be a huge benefit to the hydrology in these areas. And once people realise that wetted bogs are your friend mm. because they're doing the thing that nature designed them to do, they're holding water, they're slowing it down. And if I could add, Andrea, one other point to that. Mm. Um, sometimes, and Brian referred to it earlier, uh, you get, in in when you get a, heavy precipitation, particularly where you have uplands, the water comes hurtling down the hills if there isn't sufficient vegetation to hold it. So if our uplands are damaged, let's say by overgrazing, particularly by sheep, what you get instead is the water cascading quickly down off the hills and again flooding into lower areas. So in so many cases, and this isn't about pointing fingers at one sector or the other, for example, EU rules at the moment encourage farmers to drain land because this so-called improved land then becomes eligible for cap payments. We need to change the rules so that farmers, for example, are rewarded for 
avoiding flood damage for their neighbours, for biodiversity protection and so on, and also for water quality protection. And this requires a change in mindset. And a lot of this, by the way, is at EU level. We need better rules. And farmers are logical like the rest of us. They will react and they will respond according to the rules. And at the moment, those rules are encouraging them to drain land that they know and their father and their grandfather knew that that field isn't really suitable and it's going to flood. Just on that point, Brian, anything to say with regards to bogs? Yeah, well, listen, I suppose the county councils and local authorities around the country are in development plan cycles at the moment. Um, and again, review of development plans. We've recently completed, you know, the regional economic and spatial strategies. Um, so again, I suppose the environmental protection is now becoming a huge part of the development planning process. So again, we need to consider that in development plans. We need to allow space for it. Um, and again, highlight in our objectives of those plans to say where we are going to build and where we're not going to build. And as part of our objectives is to restore uh, natural wetlands. I suppose the value of lands before was looked at in terms of agriculture and field. But the country's changing a little yeah, bit. We're, we're, we're building green greenways, we're building tourism, we're building all that area. You know, we have fantastic examples of wetlands, you know, down in Wexford and areas like that where we can encourage the wildlife. So again, it can become a benefit. So again, from a farming point of view, and again, I, I don't want to lecture to farmers on that, but again, there are other opportunities in terms of tourism, in terms of wildlife, in terms of growing other pro- products. Um, and again, in, in restoring the biodiversity uh, and natural environment. And I think that that's very, very important. And I think, it, you know, there is an onus to build that back into our planning process and into our development process. Do you just want to come in? Fine yeah, just yeah, a, a quick point of to, to uh, amplify what Brian said. We've had a catastrophic drop in the number of migratory birds in Ireland over the last 20 to 30 years. And we know this is due to agriculture, largely due to changing agricultural practices, particularly the draining of wetlands. These are the natural habitat for migratory birds. These birds have been coming here on long migratory patterns for thousands, tens of thousands of years. We need to respect nature as well. We need to make room for nature. But most importantly, we need to reward farmers to be good custodians for nature. We need to change the rules so that farmers are rewarded, incentivised and educated as to why nature and environmental protection is so important. Okay, you're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We do have to take a short break. We'll be back with more from our panel in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to the second part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. On the show today, we're discussing flooding, the response, how we look at prevention and future planning. My panel still with me in studio today, Professor Marie Burke, who's an expert in flood risk and management at Trinity College Dublin's Department of Geography. Brian O'Donovan, who's the uh, Carlow County Council Senior Executive Officer for the Environment and Water Department and also environmental journalist John Gibbons. Um, I'm just thinking of the people who in recent weeks, perhaps living along parts of the Shannon, who've been exposed to high levels again of flooding and particularly in agricultural areas and agricultural land in more recent weeks. What can be done to solve the flood problems in the Shannon Basin, Mary? Flooding is a natural process and you will always have floods. So the first thing that can be done to help, not to solve, is to get people to realise that. Um, it's so you're very, just to, you should, people just need to un, understand expect that okay. Flo- floods, floods are going to continue to happen. But uh, in terms of what John was saying previously about uh, repurposing uh, peatlands, he's absolutely right that uh, the uh, drainage of those peatlands has led to uh, an exacerbation in the flooding problem. Um, what um, 
I suppose is important to acknowledge is also the little caveat that once you have fully restored peatlands, they're wet and probably might be full up with water for most of the year. So their efficacy in terms of uh, mitigating the flood will be quite remarkably reduced. But we're not going to be able to restore all bogs and it's a very slow and long process, but I do strongly recommend it. There's been a study done in the United Kingdom that's shown a massive decrease in the flood peaks coming down from a fully restored bog uh, in, in some of the upland areas there. Okay. Um, what we need to think about is what can we do in the meantime? So we have extensively drained our peatlands for improved agriculture, but also for turf cutting, etc. There are things, there's a kind of a, a technology, I'd like to call it, that's been explored across Europe called natural water retention measures. And this is where we slow down the flow and hold the water for a little period of time. And what we can do is put in very simple structures, quite cheap actually, talk about planks of wood or bits of turf itself in the peatlands, and you can make them porous so they leak. So you're holding back the water for between 12 and 24 hours. That's all. You're not wetting any bogs, you're not necessarily restoring any peatlands, but you're slowing down the flow from these boggy areas uh, to the main channels. But I also want to make the point that John very eloquently spoke about the fact that the water is is hurling itself down the mountains into our rivers Mm. and the water quality is being reduced. There's sediment, enormous amounts of sediment coming down. And we're hearing in terms of the recent floods, the call for dredging once again, the annual call for dredging. Will you just explain to me, Brian O'Donovan, what is what is that? What does that involve? Yeah, listen, I suppose dredging is, is simply just a matter of getting into the river and removing the sediment that has come uh, over a deposition. Um, again, you know, it can come from, uh, you know, water hurtling down and bringing large uh, volumes of sand and gravel down from upland areas. Um, again, as rivers slow, it deposits uh, in, into the channels. So again, rivers, uh, ports, etc., will will experience this over the years. So effectively, with ports, you're you're taking out the material and you're deepening the ports to make sure the ships come in. Uh, in rivers, you know, the Barrow in in Carlo is a navigable river, and again, you have barges on that. Dredging is required again, particularly to get through the canal areas uh, of those rivers. So it is required, but. I suppose you have to look at the suitability of the system to, to deal with dredging. Um, in some cases, when you have a very shallow gradient river, as in there's no particular fall there, there on the rivers, if you dredge them, all you're doing is deepening rivers um, and holding the river in the channel. It's not actually going anywhere. So it, it's not actually benefiting the river or it's not benefiting anything. So, you know, dredging can be effective um, if it's targeted in the right area. Um I have enormous sympathy for the people that I see over in the Shannon area. I've mm. stood in houses with, with floods and, you know, the feeling in those houses, yeah. the coldness, the dampness in those houses, you know, it's it's, a, it's an awful miserable feeling on that, you know. And it's something that, you know, again, mentioning the planning process, that we have to ensure that we don't repeat those mistakes in the future, that those houses don't exist in, in floodplains and aren't vulnerable to flooding in the future. But, you know, in, in terms of solutions for the Shannon, uh, it's a very long river. It's a very, very big catchment. Again, from a hard engineering point of view, you know, I come from an engineering background and, you know, give me a town, put in walls, put in a channel, put in pumping solutions, great, fantastic, you know, take take the solutions off the shelf in terms of engineering solutions. The Shannon isn't that. The Shannon is a big, big, big catchment with a lot of agricultural area. Um, and again, if you were to, as John said, try, try and channelise the river, it just won't work in areas because it's just too big a, a beast, the Shannon, uh, for that. You know, you'd have huge, the Barrow, the Shannon, areas like that are massive, massive catchments that take up most of this country. And drain everything that's coming out of our skies. So all that stuff, okay. <laughs> loads of rain. So is do we do we currently dredge the Shannon? There's, I think there's Shannon been, there's, yeah, there's been um, efforts at it, and I think a lot of them 
from 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 my perspective, appear to be driven by almost a kind of the demand locally. Uh, Dredge the Shannon has become, you know, it's become like like uh, one of those slogans that this is going to fix the problem. But of course, it won't fix the problem. The Shannon is its its fall over its length is so gentle that you can't simply make it do any, you can't change the behaviour of a massive river like this simply by digging it out. And I think Brian has explained mm. the dredging thing. There are certain places where maybe a, there's a silt uh, accumulation from a particular issue where, of course, it's an issue. And as we said, we have to protect our vital infrastructure. But this idea of taking a, um, an engineering solution to our natural waterways is kind of, it's a self-defeating exercise and it's kind of gotten us into this trouble in the first place, I'd suggest. We need instead to work with nature. We need to find natural solutions, looking at ways and also allowing nature to do its thing. Okay. Can, can, resp- I, can yeah. I just ask, first of all, so we, we do dredge in some areas. You're kind of saying there aren't a huge amount of solutions to the Shannon. Is dredging the most, Brian O'Donovan, is, is it the most obvious or is it the only solution? Or? It's, it's not the only solution. I, and again, you know, with, with, without you know be, being overly familiar with solutions on the Shannon we, we have to look at other options and again I, I will take it locally and we have looked at hard engineering solutions but there are places that we, we cannot solve they're just e- not economically viable to solve uh, in one case we're looking at a house buyout so again we're just uh, relocating the people away from the river uh, they're moving into a new house and the house is being removed um, again you know there's a cost associated with that but it is a fraction of the cost of trying to introduce a scheme the scheme in that area of course, it's engineeringly possible, um, but again, it would cost a lot of money. It would damage the infrastructure locally of the river. Um, and again, even in terms of the area that should be built, it's a special area of conservation. Uh, you know, we have a lot of natural wildlife in that. So it would be counterproductive to build, um, to protect that one house. So again, we have to look at a range of options on that, and that is an option that's available. Certainly, I know in the UK, as mentioned before, um, and in the States, you know, they have schemes uh, where they're moving people out of these plains and trying to restore the, the wetland areas. Just, John, to come back to you on that point about um, dredging the Shannon, I suppose, those other alternatives that you see it that, that might be there, because there's been a lot of calls in recent weeks again, as you pointed out, for further dredging. Yeah, I... As I say, I think oftentimes that this is a knee-jerk reaction from from driven driven at a local level by local politics and local politicians, um, kind of playing for for quick solutions. And these solutions tend to be engineering solutions because they that that seems to be like somebody from the local authority, somebody from the government, come down and pour some concrete and fix the problem. But I suppose if you're living in that area and you've been affected by it, you just want this mess sorted out. I totally understand that, and I have enormous sympathy for people in this situation. But the fact is. They will know better than better than anyone in this room that this has happened before and it's happening again and it will continue to happen in the future. And you can't just build walls around reality. Nature will have its say. Nature, the saying goes, nature bats last. Nature also always gets the last word. You can sort of wrestle ground from nature for a while. But ultimately, other than your high value Mm. infrastructure, as I mentioned, which we, of course, need to continue to protect. And by the way, it's going to get more and more expensive to protect that because on top of what we call the fluvial flooding here, which is the river based flooding. Bear in mind, we're also looking at sea level rise, significant sea level rise. And this in turn is going to have an effect on, on, on our river system and on river flooding. 
and you combine uh, sea level rise that we know is coming our way and you combine it with uh, storm surges, these are going to have effects obviously directly on our coastal regions, also our estuaries. So okay. we, we're moving into an, er- an era where we need to be spending serious amounts of money and resources and also thinking about how do we manage in the future. And in some cases, and I know people come on to, you know, the RT News or whatever it is and say, oh, I want this fixed and I want it dredged. I understand that emotional reaction. But we as a society, we can't afford to react emotionally. We have to react yeah. based on okay. the best evidence. Can I just ask Mary Burke, it's, so it's not that dredging is a sort of a quick fix solution either to, to any particular problem. So people living in this catchment, they've been flooded again. They want something done. Um, it's not that we don't have the money to, to dredge it because it's not necessarily going to be the correct solution long term. Yeah, dredging is not the right answer for this magnitude of flood and this size of catchment. Um, I alluded earlier on to the fact that there was a lot of sediment coming into into the system. Stop it where it starts. Go back up into the uplands and stop that sediment reaching the river and you won't need to, you won't have this build up of sediment and reduction of capacity in the channel. But the storm that we've just had in these last few weeks is so large that even if you imagine a, a doubling of the width of the Shannon, it wouldn't have made any difference whatsoever to getting the water out of there quickly. So dredging is, is not the answer. There is a time and a place for it, but the Shannon is not is not the place for it at all. So what do you see as the other solutions? Start there are loads. The core. Okay, there are loads us. we can do. So let's start talking a little bit more optimistically about you know what we can do and let's empower people with knowledge. So... For example, uh, it has been shown, and I will always relate back to the data, like it's not about beliefs, it's about proof. So um, planting trees, okay? So it's a long-term solution, but uh, planting with native species, broadleaf trees, has been shown to increase infiltration and interruption of the rainfall onto the ground by 67%. So you're stopping the water right there where that forest is, uh, so efficiently that it's not running down into your river. Now that'll take if you if you plant forests. That's one thing. If you just start thinking more creatively about the okay. agroforestry scheme, where farmers are being encouraged to put in strips to, that will shelter their animals from the higher temperatures that we are going to receive in the summer and the colder temperatures in the winter, these will also help. Uh, and they're quite a positive thing to do. Farmers themselves can do a lot to improve their land for drainage as well. Drainage in terms of getting the rainfall that's sitting on their soggy fields down into its own soil where it's supposed to be that will encourage growth of the uh, grasslands or whatever plants they have, the cover crops and will also slow the flow reaching down into the river that's at the bottom of the field. So there are two uh, ways in which we can um, improve things and I know we seem to be talking about farming a lot but over 80% of our land is farmland. Mm -hmm. So we have to address this issue and try and work with them. I've built a website that has um, guides for farmers, practical guides for farmers to how to improve their lands and this term of um, farming for floods. In other words, farming with the idea of having floods in your mind and these are guides that have been produced across Europe and they're available if people want yeah, to. Yeah, just what's go- the... What? So the website, if you look up the words Natural Water Retention Measures Ireland, it'll pop up. Okay. Um, and it's it's a brand new website and those guides are up there as of last night. Can I ask you, Brian O'Donovan, I suppose as somebody that's kind of working within the, the local authority area, um, some of both John and, and Mary's suggestions, I mean, are they things that could be taken on by local authorities? Yeah, listen, it's, it's, it's bigger than local authorities. It's the whole country together. I suppose one of the jobs that we have in Carlow County Council is to promote the Sustainable Development Goals, which is a UN agreement of 193 countries uh, since 2015. And that's looking at all aspects of sustainable development. 
life on land, life, uh, water, water quality, climate change, you know, and again, if we, we follow the targets within those development goals, you know, we will come to a sustainable country. So again, that's what we should base our, our plans on, you know, so there, there, there is definitely an onus, as I would mentioned before, in terms of planning for the future, uh, in terms of the sea farms and the information that we've built up over that, that huge uh, study of flooding to put in natural water retention measures. Again, the SUDS is a very, very practical measure. It's local. You can do it from a single one-off house up to a housing estate, up to a commercial development. That is water retention. Is, and it, is it that it's expensive or why are, why are we not doing more of that? Yeah, well, again, in terms of SUDS, like if you think of, of putting in an impermeable system, so keeping the, the clay in as much as possible or else putting in a hard surface of bitumen and, and concrete, it's going to cost you much more to put in the hard engineering solution. So again, keep what's there, design around it. Um, like we go in and we build off one, one-off houses and we put them in the side of hills we take out a thousand tonnes of clay we build that and we bring it down to a field and we're moving sediment around the place and they're not we're not designing correctly mm. so again we have to climate proof our strategy so everything from again your extension to a house up to a very big development they have to be looked at climate proof and they have to be considered okay. at design stage You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme we just have to take another very short break we'll be back with more on this issue with our panel in just a moment Between the Lines on News Talk. You're very welcome back to the final part of today's programme. Today we're discussing flooding and the response to it. Our panel still with us in studio today, Brian O'Donovan, who's a County Council Senior Executive Officer for the Environment and Water Department with Carlo, Environmental Journalist John Gibbons, and also a Professor Mary Burke from Trinity College Dublin's Department of Geography, an expert on flood risk and management there. Um, I just want to come to, I suppose, people affected again in more recent weeks and in that kind of Shannon area. I know the government had announced they were going to provide um, sort of this financial and humanitarian support for some property owners, small businesses who've been affected in recent weeks. I think the figures, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, to provide a contribution of up to €5,000 depending on the scale of the damage incurred and anticipated that these initial payments will meet the needs of those affected. I mean, €5,000 to me, John, would... I thought seemed pretty small in terms of the kind of works that's going to have to be carried out. Well, exactly. And as, as Brian described, the, the, the you know, if you're actually standing in up to your knees or up to your waist in, in, in a house that has that has been inundated, um, five five grand isn't isn't going to get you very far. But it, but when you multiply that over, you know, hundreds potentially of properties from a taxpayer's point of view, we're talking about a lot yeah. of money. Okay, and yeah, I think the point. most important thing to consider is how are we spending this money? Uh, throwing well, good money, Andrea, yeah, after bad. This is what I wanted yeah. to, to add. The point I want to make is mm. that do we need to have very specific um, specifications as to how this money is spent? I think so. I mean, uh, one image that sticks in my mind, and it was a real kind of post-crash image, post-2008 image, it was, a, it was a picture of a field with a sign in the middle, you know, exclusive housing development, blah, blah, blah. But it was in the middle of a pond. The actual field was under about three feet of water. And right there, just before the crash in 2008, that particular exclusive development collapsed. And here we had a picture of the sign still remaining in a field that they planned to build houses in that people were going to spend hundreds of thousands of euros and expect, rightly so, in the future to be protected, that investment to be protected. Now, the question is, we've really... Let's for starters, we have to help people who are already in this situation. Brian has talked about, uh, in some cases, it's going to make more sense to relocate people, 
there's you, there's only so much money you can do well, in this case. Yeah. And I mean, this sounds to people, I think initially there was always the belief, look, these are just once in a century events and therefore relocation is a bit extreme. It only happened in my great grandfather's time. We now know that the dice is loaded for these events in the future. We know that. We know, in fact, the dice is loaded in the present. So the idea of, of, of this being, you know, a, a so-called act of God, forget about that. This is very much an act of man and you're going to expect it. So the question has to be, we have finite resources. How do we spend them? Do we spend it on defending certain properties or do we actually help people to relocate? Because apart from the property damage and cost, there's also massive psychological um, uh, I can only trauma. imagine the stress. No, stress and, and trauma. You see people up all night long yeah. uh, trying to defend their, their house yeah. down by the river. And I have absolutely, your heart breaks for them. But the fact is, you know, ultimately what has to happen here is we have to work with nature. If that river is going to come in, there's nothing ultimately we can do about it. Can I just ask you on that point as well, um, Brian O'Donovan, just in, in terms of, you know, giving funding to farmers, house owners who've been affected. I mean, should, should we stop that and just put all that money into one um, overall approach? Listen, I suppose from a direct reaction point of view, we can't stop it. We have to support people that have been damaged. As a society, that's what we do. Um, and, you know, people who have lost their homes, uh, lost everything um, in terms of, you know, their their possessions and that, we can't just abandon yeah, them okay. in the in the here and now. I suppose we have to look at what we're going to do in the future yeah. to help the people. And are we going to just, you know, have them repeat the mistake? Again, there's not only the cost of, of you know, the the uh, humanitarian aid but again there's other costs associated with it because people have to be relocated there's costs for a temporary accommodation again even to get in and get the people out you know there's a huge risk uh, to people that if there's health issues and they're caught in their homes and again rescue services have to go in and get the people you know so Again, when we're looking at those areas, we not only have to look at the development, we have to look at how to get in and out of the development. So you can build on top of a hill, but if the road is flooded and you can't get into the people, again, that's putting pressure on emergency services, it's putting pressure on local authorities, it's putting pressure everywhere. So you have to look holistically at how you, you solve these and locate people in the right places so as we avoid back it in the future. Okay. It's back to planning. Can I ask you, Mary Burke, maybe um, just with regards to other EU countries, like I know when you're, your own work as an academic and I'm sure you'd look at what the approach taken by other countries across Europe to try and deal with countries that have had similar problems to ourselves. I mean, what sort of tips can we take from there and perhaps maybe implement here? So there is a, a kind of a, a sustainable approach to to. F- flooding that's been adopted, particularly in the United Kingdom, which is a lot of landscape that is similar but not identical to ours. And it's all about slowing the flow. So they construct uh, right up in the headwaters, which is the very tip top of any catchment. Uh, They throw trees across uh, small uh, channels that you could kind of take two steps and jump across. And that slows down the flow in that channel for about 20 seconds. And you put in 10 or 15 of those in a row every 10 or 15 metres. And you'll end up with a cumulative... Uh, synergistic kind of delaying of the flow they're reaching down. Now they've done these for entire catchments, small catchments in the United Kingdom and they've shown a measurable decrease in flood. In fact, there's one catchment called Belford um, in the United Kingdom that they went and they put in these leaky dams and they put in things called buns, which are little dams that are also porous. Everything is porous. You're not flooding anybody's land. You're just slowing down the flow. And they had a similar kind of rainfall to the one in 2007, which is galvanised those communities to do Mm. something. The next village got flooded, they did not. So these have been shown to work for small catchments and small villages. And I know we're talking a lot about the Shannon, 
But there's Ballingarian Cork has been devastated yeah. year after year. There's all of these smaller villages and these people are also in need of assistance. So these natural water retention measures would be very, very effective in these okay. smaller catchments. Well, maybe we're out of time now when, of course, we will have um, a, a new government to be formed. Whether or not there'll be a new Department of Environment is, is another question. But can I ask you all just in a final point for today? And Mary, I might just start with yourself. I mean, what do you think the incoming government with who have responsibility for this particular department, what should they do? Focus on resilience and focus on enabling farmers through payment schemes to help out the rest of the people who live in that catchment uh, to improve their resilience against floods. John Gibbons? Yeah, I think we have to work with nature, we have to listen to nature and we have to also understand that we have to make room for nature. And that is um, that includes wildlife. It also includes the natural catchments of rivers. We can't engineer our way out of this problem. We have to work with nature. Okay, and we'll give the final word to you, Brian Donovan, today. Yeah, again, it's, it's much on the same point. We have to incentivise the right solution. We can't incentivise the wrong solution. And I think that's potentially what's happening at the moment. So again, we have to show, again, landowners, riparian landowners, that there's a huge environmental value and potential financial value to solving the problem for the whole country. Okay, a really interesting um, insight and explainer into what's causing some of the flooding problems in this country today. My thanks to you all for your time. Uh, Professor Mary Burke, who's an expert in flood risk management at Trinity College Dublin, environmental journalist John Gibbons and Brian O'Donovan from Carlow County Council. My thanks to you all for joining us today. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. If you've missed any of the programme, you can download the podcast on our website or on the Go Loud app. My thanks to the production team, Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan. I'll be back again with Breakfast Briefing on Monday morning from six and with Between the Lines this time next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day.